Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. Today, Brian speaks with two guests. His first guest, Cass Bromley, Chief of Resource Management and Research for the National Park Service at Zion National Park, talks about animals and plants found in Zion. Brian's second guest, Corey Cronin, talks about his experiences hiking and backpacking in Zion. I'm with uh, Cass Bromley, Chief of Resources Management and Research at Zion. Uh, Cass, thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Uh, so we thought to talk to you because uh, I had a recent trip to Zion. It was me and uh, my high school buddies. And, of course, we we went to Zion, and the attraction to Zion was the vistas, the canyon, the scenery. Uh, we actually had pretty good luck with seeing wildlife. And uh, that was a bonus attraction that none of us had counted on or or gamed out the visit to to uh, to see it just happened and it was fantastic. So we thought it'd be great to to talk to you to to explore a little bit more about some of the wildlife and um, and fauna we can see when we're at the uh, when we're at the park. Um, I think well, if I can start with kind of the the big thing is uh, we were on uh, Angel's Landing and we were getting close to the top, right? Getting close to the kind of the end of the trail and. Uh, we got buzzed by two California condors, which was uh, super exciting. And a matter of fact, I was able to get some video and some pictures. But uh, do you want to talk a little about the California condors and why they're so special? Sure. California condors are great animals. Um, they've been around since the Pleistocene. So when they were originally flying around, there were giant mammoths and mastodons and dire wolves um, running around. Um, and when you see them, they really do kind of have that sense of something prehistoric and something ancient. And part of that is because they're so big. Um, their wingspan from tip to tip um, is nine and a half, almost ten feet. Yeah. Um, so they're really big birds. Um, and they fly really effortlessly, um, really good at catching um, wind currents and soaring, and they have a real steady flight, and they can cover hundreds of miles um, in a day without a whole lot of effort. Um, they're also special because there aren't very many California condors. Yeah. Um, in the late 80s, they almost went extinct. Um, and at a minimum, at one point, there were only 22 of them left in the world. Um, and through the efforts of a lot of people, a lot of agencies, a lot of groups, there are now about 450 California condors. Um, a little over 270 of those are in the wild. Uh, they, they're in California, um, Utah and Arizona, and in Baja in Mexico. Um, and the Utah, Arizona, which the ones you saw are part of that group, there are a little over 80 of those birds in the wild. Um, that so, Zion pair is especially interesting. Uh, last year they tried to nest, and it was in an area where it was pretty visible to people, um, and they almost fledged a chick. They got really close, uh, and then the male condor died, and the chick, there was a big storm event, and the chick disappeared. Um, so we were hoping that this year they would re-nest. Um, what you probably saw was the female uh, and a new male. She's found a new male. Mm -hmm. And earlier this spring, they were um, acting like they were going to nest and settle down. But they never quite did. So I don't think we're going to have nesting condors in the park this year. So how um, likely would it be for a visitor to see them? We felt pretty special. Uh, but but is, it, is it not that special if you kind of just go out and about and, and they're so big and they're around, you'll see them? Or... Uh, What's the likelihood? They're big and around, but they're not. I, I certainly don't see them every trip up into the park. It's a rare occurrence when I see them. 
Uh, Angel's Landing is certainly one of the most likely places to see them, mm -hmm. but it's not certainly not every trip up that you'll see them. They can be a little bit more visible sometimes in Grand Canyon or in the Vermilion Cliffs. Mm -hmm. And they're present here in Zion, but you were lucky. Wow. Well, that's good. Well, we, we let's back up from there, and we can we can talk a little bit about my luck and uh, the condors. But can you talk about uh, you know your role at Zion and and maybe talk a little bit about the the particular habitats uh, at Zion for wildlife and and how they function within that habitat? Sure. Zion's an interesting place because it's on the edge of several different habitat types, um, from the Colorado Plateau to Great Basin and Mojave Desert. So we have a really wide range of habitats. Um, and we have a big elevation difference. Um, mm -hmm. If you climbed up to Angel's Landing, you felt part of that elevation distance for sure. Yep. Um, but we have a difference of about 5,000 feet from the lowest part of the park to the highest part of the park. Um, we have a really wide range of habitats. And condors are really good at searching for carrion. They're carrion eaters, um, dead animals essentially, over a wide range of areas. Um, but they're primarily in this area desert birds. In California, they live on the coast and eat. Uh, dead marine mammals occasionally. And uh, so, so what what else could we could one expect to see? And I'll, I'll kind of lead the the witness here because we we did a night hike on the Watchman Trail, and uh, you know I heard the rattle. You know I had my uh, headlamp on and uh, pointed to the direction of the rattle, and there there it was was a rattlesnake, which was the first time I've ever seen a rattlesnake. You know I'm, I'm from the East Coast here, so. Uh, they're they're not they're not here. So it was kind of the first time for me to see a rattlesnake. And then uh, at another hike, uh, again it was at dusk, which may have been the hint, right? That may have been the lead. Uh, saw a big old tarantula just in the middle of the path, hanging out, and uh, you know got to got to see that. So those are two uh, along the California condors, and of course we saw a lot of deer. Those were the exciting things we could see. But what 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 else can one expect to see? Uh, maybe if you're a birder, but then what can you expect to see if you have your eyes a little bit fixed to the ground? Sure. Um, one of my favorite sightings are actually hearings in the park is to hear canyon wrens. Um, they're little tiny birds, but they have this really distinctive call that you know you're in canyon country when you hear it. It's kind of this descending trill. Um, and I love being out and hearing the, the canyon wrens make a noise. Um, to me, it's a really distinctive desert sound. Yeah. Um, we also do have a few different species of reptiles, like the rattlesnake you saw. We also have king snakes and quite a few different kinds of lizards and canyon tree frogs, which you'll often see or hear um, in the canyon as well. Um, the other kind of cool, we also have um, bighorn sheep on the east side of the park. Um, you're pretty likely to see desert bighorns. Oh, like the checkerboard mesa area? Yeah, outside on the east side, sort of between the east end of the tunnel and checkerboard mesa. Um, we have a pretty good-sized herd of bighorn sheep. Uh, those were actually reintroduced into the park in the late 70s, and they're doing really well. Yeah. Um, this spring, the lambs were a lot of fun to watch. They're really well adapted to hanging out on cliffs and canyon country, and you'll watch them walk across areas <laughs> that you wouldn't think anything could get through, and these little lambs are navigating across, no problem. So those are always fun to watch. Um, we have a lot of raptors and other birds. You may also see turkey vultures, right. um, red-tailed hawks. Uh, because we have such a range of habitats, from sagebrush uh, to riparian uh, riverside habitat, we have a pretty good range of birds um, in each of those distinctive habitat types. Yeah, it was a nice, uh, again, my ignorance, but it was a nice surprise to my ignorance because, uh, you know, I had been to Zion before, and I don't remember 
the wildlife. So, of course, what I did remember was, you know, the desert, the oasis nature of the Virgin River. Uh, but there was no uh, – the attraction wasn't as it would be for some other parks. You know, you think about Yellowstone, and part of the attraction of Yellowstone is – is the diverse, you know, between bears sure. and moose Being and elk. And, right, the bison herds, wolves maybe. Uh, it didn't occur to me when coming to, to Zion. So it was a, like I said, it was a very pleasant, a pleasant surprise. But, it, you know, what you're saying is because of, it's not a desert, the biodiversity of that area, it's not something that's bereft of wildlife. In fact, it sounds like it's pretty, uh, it's pretty packed with wildlife and just you got to, you got to keep your eye out. Is that is that would would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, it is indeed. And there's one other cool animal that you could have seen, especially on a night hike, and that's a ringtail. Um, it's an animal that's related to the raccoon, and it has a really long striped tail. It's mostly out at dusk and at night. Really. Um, and we have to warn people to be careful with their garbage and disposing of it because they will scavenge. But they're they're are interesting, cool little animals. Related to the not raccoon? People, because they're nocturnal, not a lot of people see them. Are they related to the raccoon? They are related to the raccoon. No, we we didn't we didn't see we didn't see that. I guess that leads me to my next question. We kind of, uh, you know, not literally, thank God, but but figuratively stumbled on the rattlesnake and the tarantula, just because we were doing some hikes at dusk. Do you recommend if one was going to design that another perspective? Is uh, is maybe to go at sunrise or at dusk to maybe lay your eyes on some wildlife that you're not going to get at one o'clock in the afternoon. Sure, a lot of wildlife species, especially in the desert and especially when it's hot, are active at night um, or they're crepuscular, which means they're active at dawn and dusk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a great time to look for wildlife. That's especially a good time to go sit down by the river or somewhere and sit quietly and see what comes through and what moves around and watch the light change on the big red rocks. Uh-huh. So what what would There's be a, a lot going on at night? What do you think would be a good front country hike if you wanted to go out at let's say dusk or you wanted to get up early and uh with the intention to see some wildlife. Of course you're going to see deer, but of course the the intention to see some wildlife and then you know if it's packaged into some of these amazing views that Zion offers uh all the better. What do you think what what would be your hike of choice? Sure. Um there are a couple trails that are in the riparian areas, and that are, those are always good places to see wildlife. One is the Perouse Trail that goes along the Virgin River mm-hmm. from the Visitor Center towards Canyon Junction, and it crosses several bridges and gives you some really nice views and some really good spots to sit and watch and listen. Um, there, as you said, there are often deer down in there, um, as well as all kinds of other animals. Uh, riverside walks can be busy um, during the day, but early in the morning and in the evening, um, depending on the time of year, also because it's down by the river. Right. Um, I almost always see deer down there uh, and other animals as well. One thing people should be aware of is we also have, because um, people tend to feed them, we have a lot of rock squirrels and chipmunks um, <laughs> yeah. that are habituated to people. Uh, and if you were to ask me the most dangerous animal in the park or the animal that most often impacts people, it would probably be those guys in that, um, they've been known to bite people that feed them or to get food um, from people that are not trying to feed them. Um, so one caution I would give to people is no matter how cute the wildlife is um, or how much you're trying to get a, get a look at it, um, don't feed the rock squirrels or the chipmunks or any other wildlife because it's not good for them and it's not good for visitors either. Yeah, I guess very good common sense all over. But uh, I, on the other hand, 
counterintuitive because, of, of course, I, I, you know, one would think you would say, well, be careful of those rattlers, right, and, and, and watch where you're going. But uh, to your point, it's, uh, it's something like that, that if you're, they're uh, acclimated to uh, humans and they're biting and they may have their own, uh, their own issues, right, their own diseases that they, they could pass on, that could be very dangerous, I can imagine. And that probably happens yeah, it's more true. Like there it. are certainly rattlesnakes in the park, and yeah. it's good to be aware of them and watch where you put your hands and feet. Um, but rattlesnakes, as you've noticed, are often polite enough to warn you, and as long as you use common sense and let them go their way, they'll generally let you go your way. It's the whole part, the whole purpose of the rattle is that for them to say, "Hey, I'm over here. You know, leave me alone. I'm over here, and and don't bother me, and I won't bother you." Right? They're 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 clearly giving you that big signal. Yes, they are. They don't they don't necessarily want to waste any venom on something they can't eat and you're a little bit too big for them to eat. So <laughs> that's that's they would right. Prefer that you went one way and they went the other. That's right. Well, just uh, a couple of things just going back to the condors as as you know an, an endangered species with with only 400 or so uh that are that are around. Uh what are what, what what's the biggest threat to the California condors. I mean, how, how it seems like they're on the right path right now, but where where could it go wrong? They are on the right path, and a lot of groups like the Peregrine Fund are doing a lot of really good root work. Um, the biggest threat to condors right now is lead, uh, and what I mean by that is lead ammunition, um, and not so much as condors being shot directly, although that happens every once in a while. Mm. Oh. Um, but mostly people shooting other animals, deer hunters, elk hunters, um, ranchers dealing with injured uh, livestock. So lead ammunition can remain in the carcass, and when the condors eat carcass with lead in it, um, the lead builds up and becomes toxic pretty quickly. Um, so most of the many of the condor deaths um, are due to lead poisoning, um, and a lot of people are working hard to mitigate that. The state of Utah, the state of Arizona, Peregrine Fund um, have programs working with hunters um, to give them information and often free it free non-lead ammunition right. um, to try to mitigate that problem and try to help out and to provide, because um, condors love to eat gut piles um, mm-hmm. from hunters. They're scavengers. That's right, right. up their alley. Um, but it's definitely a tainted food source if it has lead or lead ammunition in it. Right. Um, so we've been working hard that to have people that are hunting in condor territory um, use lead-free ammunition. Um, to give the condors a little bit better chance. Well, that's interesting. Would 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 the turkey vultures as well be a threat in terms of being natural competition for uh, as a carrion bird? No, in fact, condors are big enough that they'll usually displace uh, turkey vultures and ravens and other animals from the carcass. Oh, really? Um, not many other birds will compete with them, and they're social. So often, you'll have a whole bunch of condors on a carcass, and they'll tend to displace uh, con. Uh, turkey vulture, and often condors are hunting by sight, not by smell, uh-huh. so they're actively watching for ravens and vultures and other um, scavengers on carcasses. Oh, interesting. Um, so they may see those animals come into a carcass because uh, somebody else is already working on it, and then they can generally displace those smaller scavengers. Right, and their reproduction rate. So you, you sense before you were looking for a fledgling and it, and it didn't happen, but uh, uh, it sounds like the the uh, reproduction rate is, is probably a challenge as well. It is. Condors are interesting birds, and part of the difficulty in recovering them is that they do have a low reproduction rate. A female will generally only lay one egg, 
um, and that it will take a while to fledge. And then the, the fledgling will stay with the parents uh, for a year or two. They're very social. There are a lot of things to learn about being a condor that they learn from their parents. Um, so often a condor pair, uh, and they tend to stay together for life, um, will only lay an egg every other year. Um, and they don't start reproducing until they're six or seven, generally. Um, the good news is they can live for up to 60 years, um, so they have quite a few years to make attempts. 60, six zero? But because of the slow reproductive rate, they're, it's difficult to increase condor numbers quickly. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, I had no idea that they could be that long live. That's, uh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty interesting. Um, you know, I just want to chase back. You mentioned something you kind of gave, uh, you tipped your hand, I think, uh, with a, with a hint. Whereas I was characterizing going on a hike to see wildlife, you had mentioned twice, um, sitting quietly and listening and watching. It sounds like that's your recommendation that maybe instead of, uh, tromping through a trail is uh, finding a nice perch and uh, no pun intended and uh, just sitting there quietly and watching and listening. Is that, is that what you recommended? I do. It's always alluring to go see what's around the next corner. Um, but places like Zion and a lot of parks will also reward sitting still and slowing down a little bit, yeah. um, watching and looking and listening. Um, when the weather changes and the light changes, um, the cliffs change and different animals and birds move through. And often if you're sitting quietly, um, you'll see things that you wouldn't see if you're walking down the trail, um, talking with a bunch of people and not really paying attention to where you are and what might be around you. One thing we, we wanted to check in about uh, threatened or endangered species that may be on the rise that, you know, it sounds like the California condors turned a corner. But are there other uh, other species that uh, that you're worried about? In particular, you know, the Mexican spotted owl, the Mojave desert tortoises, or anything along those lines that uh, that those who are visiting the park should keep an eye out for and uh, and should take special care. Sure, uh, we also have Mexican spotted owls in the park. They're interesting because they're specialists in narrow slot canyons, which Zion has quite a few of. Yeah. Um, you're more likely to hear a Mexican spotted owl than to see it. In fact, that's how we survey for them, um, is by listening for them. Um, and they're doing pretty well in the park in the protected habitat. Uh, the other threatened and endangered species we have are Mojave Desert tortoises, or our population in the park. Um, they seem to be doing pretty well, too. Um, they're another long-lived, slow-reproductive species. The other day we were out surveying and found a a uh, broken egg outside one of the burrows, so we know they're reproducing in the park. Good. Um, so they seem to be doing pretty well, too. Um, Peregrine falcons is the other one you may see in the park. Uh, they have a pretty distinctive call, and they nest on big cliff faces. Uh, they can be a lot of fun to watch. They're really good, really fast flyers. Um, they're one that, uh, that people may see as well if you sit patiently and watch for a while and see what flies by. Yeah. And are the, are the owls diurnal or are they nocturnal, the Mexican spotted owls? Owls are primarily nocturnal. Got it. Got it. So it's another one, more listen for it or look for signs for it, then, uh, then you'll be able to see it most likely. Uh, and by the way, we looked at pictures of these, and the uh, Mexican spotted owl was, was pretty cute. So it's too, uh, it's too, too bad I, I didn't yeah. see one of those, but it's, it's, a, uh, it's definitely a, an attractive animal. Uh, yeah, they're good-looking owls. So just one thing we should, we've been spending all the time on, uh, on the wildlife, but we should talk about a bit about the flora. So just um, one thing close to our heart is uh, wildflowers. So, so on the plant side of things, what are some of the wildflowers 
that uh, that may be seen in, in Zion? At, and what time would we want to visit the park to see them? Uh, springtime is a great time to be in the park. I've been out the last couple weekends, um, and there's something new blooming every day. Um, I was up by Riverside Walk this weekend, and there were a lot of shooting stars, and the columbines were just about to bloom, so they're going to be really gorgeous in another week or two. Um, again, some of those wet areas are good places to look. Um, but the cactus have been in bloom, too, um, really oh. fluorescent, bright pink and red and really colorful cactus blooms. Um, so anywhere from the desert to the riparian uh, this time of year, there are some spots of color and some beautiful flowers. And how does the interplay of the Virgin River uh, uh, with a lot of the plant life? And then as as you go away, as you emanate away from the Virgin River and you get to some more of the outlying areas of the park, and plant life. How, what what can one expect to see, or what they what what would one look for, whether they're closer to the Virgin River or as they start to radiate out? Sure, a lot of the Virgin River is a cottonwood dominated riparian area, uh, so we'll have beautiful cottonwood trees this time of year. That green is still a little bit new and fresh looking. Um, in the fall, they'll be bright yellow and beautiful. Um, so the cottonwood riparian is always an interesting area to look at. And as these move up and out, you'll get into more desert-adapted plants. Um, you'll see cacti, uh, Indian paintbrush, sagebrush, rabbit brush, um, plants that are more adapted to live in the desert. Um, you'll also see some invasive species, um, such as cheatgrass uh, growing in the park. Uh, we do a lot of work trying to reduce or eliminate cheatgrass uh, and a few other invasive exotic species. Um, but we have the full range from Ponderosa Pine up in some of the high country yeah. uh, to some beautiful sagebrush steppe. Um, I love the smell of sagebrush, especially when it's raining. Um, it's one of my favorite smells in the world. Um, yeah. Sagebrush and rabbit brush um, in a lot of the drier areas of the park as well. Uh, it sounds lovely. Now, uh, you also have some aspen as well. Am I, am I correct up in some of the higher elevations of the park? There's a little bit up high. Um, it's certainly not a dominant one in the park here. Um, but the park has every covers elevations from a little over three thousand feet to a little over eight thousand feet. Yeah, I think that's the key. I think that's what's what's pretty uh, pretty spectacular about a. And we were talking about this with one of your colleagues. It's not as far as national parks go, a large park, but that spread in elevation, you can. Uh, it's almost like uh, two or three or even more, probably in your opinion, different parks if you're in the canyons and then you go up to uh Kalub, and then maybe in the eastern part uh certainly it seems like three different places and you can get a, a great yeah, spread really, even in the same day if you're up in Kolob in the winter time it's a lot different than being down in the main canyon yeah um, but or, yeah you can get a range of weathers from the east side to Kolob to the desert southwest camping sites um down by Colpitt's Wash yeah, and so that's just the reason why I asked the aspen because we saw the aspen up there, and it wouldn't occur to me that I was going to see aspen in Zion again with my mental image being mostly the Cena Canyon and and kind of the uh, the desert slash desert oasis type of uh, type of plant life. I just just didn't occur to me, and so again, that was one of the great things about Zion and probably just visiting any park when you're pleasantly surprised. Uh, and kind of even your expectations are overturned in a very pleasant way. And so, uh, again, we got that with the wildlife, which just none of it I was expecting. And uh, we, we were very lucky. And, uh, again, with some of the plant life, some of the trees we got to see. Again, we were there in the fall, so uh, not wildflower season. So I'm very jealous that you're, uh, 
that you've got to experience that, and that's just another great excuse to go back. It is, yeah. The cacti and the flocks up in the desert country and the columbines and the riparian right now are really pretty. How long would you expect those blooms to last? It's going to depend a little bit on how quickly it warms up. It's usually a fairly short wildflower season, but like you said, with the elevation, um, where the best places to see them will change through the springtime. What, what would you think, offhand, the most amazing thing you saw in just sitting and watching and waiting, something that even surprised you? For me, I think even pausing uh, part of this winter, going up the Angel's Landing Trail, and it was a day when it was pretty quiet, um, and part of it was just listening to the sounds, the canyon wren making noise, with ice melting and coming loose and cracking and falling down. Um, and I think that quietness gave a little bit of sense of this immensity of the canyon, um, the amount of time it took to carve it, um, and just sort of the different scale of the place, uh, both in time and in massive cliffs and the diversity of things that are out there. Um, so not necessarily one amazing piece of wildlife or wildlife sighting, but just slowing down and getting a real sense of place. Well, I'll tell you what, that was, that was very evocative and probably a nice spot to, a nice spot to end on. And I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate your time and, uh, your insights. Looking forward to seeing you the next time we're out. Yeah, thanks. Come back. Now on to our next guest. Brian speaks with Corey Cronin about backpacking in Zion. I'm here with Corey Cronin, who's calling in from Salt Lake City. Uh, so Corey has Zion in his backyard, uh, more or less, and he's here to talk to us a little bit about uh, a little about some backcountry hiking. So uh, thanks again for joining us, Corey. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just wanted to, just to set the stage, I, uh, high school buddies and I, we already had our trip report. We uh, went to Zion, and we really, we really did the front country pretty well, so... Uh, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did the Narrows, we did Angel's Landing, uh, we did the Watchman Trail, uh, several others. And then we went up to, and I always mispronounce this, Colob Canyons. And, uh, and Colob. Colob. See, I always mispronounce it. And yeah. I have a mental block here. <laughs> and, you know, we did Timber Creek and we hit some of the other trails up there. But again, front country. So thought it would be worthwhile to chat with you about some of your backcountry experiences. So, uh, so with that, where, where have you been in the, uh, the backcountry of Zion? Sure. So I have visited Zion three times. Uh, one, I was kind of acting as a trail guide for some high school friends. Uh, so we just kind of did, you know, the basic angels landing, and it was their first time ever camping. So um, that was an experience in and of itself. Uh, two of the other times I've gone, uh, it was actually my second back, backpacking experience ever, uh, and we went up the East Rim from Weeping Rock, mm-hmm. and we went to Cable Mountain. Um, it's an approximately 15 and a half to 16 mile long trail um, with something like 2,400 feet of elevation gain. Um, you go up one canyon called Echo Canyon absolutely incredible uh you go through the kind of the, the white rock of uh, the navajo sandstone um incredibly strenuous in parts um i think it's rated as a, a moderate to difficult trail right. and uh, as i said it was my second time ever backpacking 
So, you know, 40 pounds on your back. And, and I thought my buddy was uh, taking us into the, the backwoods to, to put us to our, uh, to our end. Um, but uh, <laughs> you made Caleb, uh, I made it. I made it, yeah. Um, but Cable Mountain, um, it's at the top of the plateau on the east rim. And uh, it, it used to be where they would, uh, they would uh, cut timber up on the plateau and right. send it down into the canyon. And actually, that's what uh, Zion Law was built out of. Um, so here we are. We were having dinner up there. Um, and, uh, again, an experienced backpacker took, took some cheese with us. The cheese ended up going bad. We did not know that. So here we are making dinner and making quesadillas. On the hike back, we were about two miles from the top of Cable Mountain is where we had set up camp. And uh, on the hike back, my buddy got sick. So bad cheese? We, uh, bad cheese, yeah. yeah. So uh, That's grim when you're in the back I, country. Uh, <laughs> awful. That could be grim. Absolutely yeah. awful. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I had to go hike about another mile and a half to the only water source that's up there. Right. Uh, I believe it's called the Sprave. Sprav Spring, something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and and that spring is little more than a trickle. So <laughs> here it is, right around twilight, right. Uh, trying to hike and get more water to help my buddy out, uh, having to wait 20 minutes to fill a water bottle because it's this trickle uh, coming out of the spring, and hiking back in the dark. He uh, he was passed out in the tent and and not feeling well whatsoever. Um, and gosh, that would have been. I think it was late August, early September that we did that hike. Um, and, and Zion, you know, it's one of those places where if you're in the canyon, it stays relatively cool. But once you get up on that plateau, it is 85 degrees. Right. Um, Even so here he is in misery. Yeah. <laughs> here he is in misery, and it's, it's ungodly hot out and, and uh, made for an interesting first backpacking experience in Zion. So, so um, Corey, let me unpack, no pun intended, a little bit to unpack here. Yeah. So just to be clear, for an orientation, so you did the East Rim Trail to Cable Mountain. So you came in on the east side of the park through the Zion-Mount Carmel Highway, right? That's where the trailhead was on the east entrance? So there, there are actually two ways to do, uh, oh. to do Cable Mountain. So you can do it from the east entrance which is a little bit longer. It's about 17 miles. Mm -hmm. um, but we actually, we spent the night, there's this little, like, vagabond camp, which has since dispersed. Uh, but this little spot at uh, Colpitt's Wash when you're driving into Springdale, okay. uh, into the mouth of Zion Canyon. Uh, so we set up camp there. It was, as I said, this little vagabond free camping spot, and we met some very interesting characters. Um, but we caught the first shuttle from uh, from. Uh, the visitor center to Weeping Rock, right. and uh, this is the the fifteen and a half mile trail where you basically go straight up the canyon wall, um, and then there's this loop that'll bring you back to Cable Mountain. You go through something called Echo Canyon, um, and, and uh, work your way up onto the plateau. So we were actually within Zion Canyon itself Got uh, it. for that trailhead. So two ways to get there through the east through the east entrance, and then of course you just went up the. Uh the main scenic drive and, and picked it up from the weeping, which we, yeah, my buddies and I, we did the weeping rock as kind of a cool down hike. So we, yeah. Uh, so yeah, just right there, you can pick up that trail. Now, now that you mentioned that I can, I, I have a vague memory of being able to see the East Rim trail, uh, trailhead from there. So you did that. And how many nights, how many nights was that just an overnight? Yeah, we just did that as an overnight trip. We, uh, you know, given that Zion is, 
you know, it is relatively the backyard of Salt Lake City. It's still about a four-hour drive. Right. Uh, so, you know, we, we were all in school. We couldn't get off, uh, get off class or anything. So we left after, after class on a Friday. I think it was about 4 o'clock, and we got down around to 8 and went to that little vagabond camp spot. And then, uh, as I said, caught the first shuttle into Zion and uh, spent the day hiking and backpacking, went to Cable Mountain. Had uh, had some quesadillas, and then the rest of the night was misery. So, <laughs> so the advice there is: uh, uh, don't pack bad cheese, or, or or maybe just don't bring cheese. Period. And then number two, yeah. uh, water. So, just in all seriousness, so there, uh, when you did the overnight, there was no uh, there was no potable water. You had to pack in your own water and carry it and right. carry out everything, which is which is important to know. And again, one thing, I mean, you you're used to this, so I'll I'll, I'll jump in with some advice for a guy like mm-hmm. me from the east coast and from humidity uh you know that mm-hmm. nice dry heat i didn't realize how hot i was getting in dry heat and uh reminding totally. myself to hydrate was a for me i don't know about you for me was an issue i had to keep reminding myself to hydrate uh just being u- used Absolutely. to humidity so uh in all seriousness probably staying hydrated especially your buddy who got sick had to stay hydrated as well so i shouldn't laugh that sounds awful so that's two trips right? yeah so what, what was the third trip uh, so the third trip uh, was last year, and uh, with uh, with the same buddy that got sick on that first trip, uh, we and a group of, of a few other fairly inexperienced hikers and backpackers, uh, we were going to do the West Rim Trail. Um, this was in what must have been April of last year, almost a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, late late March, early April, and. Last year, Utah had one of the worst winters they've had in recent memory. So here we are. We're going to do the West Rim Trail, and uh, we get to the park. Turns out southern Utah had just received this this huge snowstorm about two, three weeks previously. So the West Rim Trail was snowed in. Um, We talked to a ranger there. They said, you're going to have to park your car at a gate that's closed, which is going to add an additional 10 miles on top of your already 10-mile hike. Um, and the snow is going to be – she said she had been up there two days previously uh, just to check out the trail, and she was uh, in snow that was past her knees. So uh, here we are at the visitor center going, well, golly, what are we going to do? Uh, so, so this brings me to a point – that backpacking has taught me through my, my various experiences here in, in Utah and Wyoming, which is adaptability is key. Right. Um, so, so we went from plan A, which was the West Rim Trail. Then we asked, oh, well, we've got a plan B. What's the East Rim Trail look like? Well, it turns out the East Rim Trail was also snowed in. Uh, they had less snow, so it was only about a foot deep. But with that, that snow melt, the trails were mud. And she said, unless you have crampons, I highly recommend you do not do this trail. Yeah. Uh, so we, we then had to go to Plan C, which the ranger suggested. There's a, a, a little traveled area of Zion Park called the Southwest Desert. And it's about a 10-mile loop, give or take. Um, and you actually start, the trailhead starts in residential Springdale um, off of the Anasazi Road. Okay. And you hike in. Um, you're, you're going through residential area for Oh, about three quarters of a mile, and then it's just open desert. Right. Um, and it's a fairly easy hike. Uh, I wouldn't say there's a whole lot of elevation gain, but, but where the challenge is is that, once again, very limited in water resources. And 
two, you know, this is plan C, so we have no idea what we're doing. We're going based off of the ranger's recommendation and the map they gave us at the visitor center. Um, and how was so, that map? So, how was that map? Because you know, sometimes the it, National Park Service maps that they hand out are not exactly to scale, and it, it can be a little frustrating. Right, right. And I would say, you know, it's a fairly decent map, um, and, and it clearly showed on the map kind of the loop and the trail, and, and um, we had to reserve a camping spot. Our camp spot, we got the last one. There were six in this loop. And, of course, the, the one we get is the farthest one from the trailhead. Right. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going along. It goes right ar- along the, the base of the cliffs uh, at the entrance design. It, it gave this different perspective of the park. Um, it was kind of, I don't know if you've seen pictures of the painted hills in Oregon, but it was kind of that rock formation just before you enter the actual park in the canyon. Um, that was that was the geology um, that we were seeing. Um, so, as I said, I think it was a group of five of us, and we had very limited water resources. I think we had two 10-liter dromedaries, Plus, we recommended everybody bring at least two Nalgene's full of water. Yep. And then I also had a Camelback. Um, so it was, it was one of those experiences where you know, we don't really know what we're doing, but we're going to have a good time and, and see what happens. And it ended up being, honestly, one of the, the best nights of backpacking I've ever experienced. Um, the, the weather was perfect. Um, that night, it was a nice full moon but it showed up later in the evening, so you got a, a decent view of the stars, and then the moon comes out. So, um, you know, I didn't have a – I actually slept in a hammock. Oh, um, great. And just kind of laid – yeah, just laid with my head out of the hammock. And, That's my and, style. Uh, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, so, yeah, the Southwest Desert was, uh, was a, a unique Zion experience and one that I didn't know was possible. Yeah, you know, I haven't – I have not heard about the Southwest Desert as ac- – uh, access through Springdale, you know, I know there's um, mm-hmm. kind of the right fork and grapevine trails if you go through the uh, Colob Terrace Road area, and then, uh, of course, if you mm-hmm. go, if you have other entrances through, uh, when you go up into the Colob Canyons uh, Visitor Center, there's some places there, and then, and then again from the north, uh, but I had uh, yeah. the Southwest Desert Area, and so there was a, an NPS campsite there that you could... Uh, that you could hike to, and then uh, you did a, you said how many miles loop was it, Corey? Yeah, it's about a 10-mile loop. Uh, the nearest campsite, uh, we were at campsite four, I believe, four of six. Mm-hmm. And the first campsite, I believe, is four miles into the trail. Um, now, the thing with the Southwest Desert is that you are going to have to caravan. Um, it starts at the Anasazi Road, and I don't exactly remember what the, the official trailhead name is. I think it's uh, Chinel, I think it's the Chinel Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about three miles down that main road that leads into Zion is the Coal Pits Wash, uh, which used to be kind of that vagabond campsite, which the National Park Service has since kind of clamped down on, on camping there. But that's right. where you pop out. Um, oh, I see. So, yeah, it, it's one of those things that you have to caravan, um, but it's not too far down the road. So Coal Pits Wash, which is one word, right? That That's where you kind of pop out? Yes, that's correct. Got it. Got it. All right, so that's that's actually a neat tip and something that is uh, certainly backcountry when you and it's close to. I think that's interesting is that you're close to the main scenic drive in the canyon where where all the main sites mm-hmm. are. That if you just even want to pop out quickly, 
um, and get into the back country. Uh, once again, that's a kind of a consistent theme we've found with the national parks is, you know, getting to the back country is not hard. And uh, even here, I, I just learned that it's easier than I thought it was in Zion, that you're right there out of the main the main town of Springdale that you can pretty much go in the southwest desert. That's that's a pretty good tip, Corey. I, I appreciate it. Any any yeah. other advice that you would give? Or let me ask you this. When, you know, I, I imagine being in Salt Lake, you're not too far away. Any plans on where, if if and when you go back to Zion, where, uh, where else you'd like to see? Yeah, I'm actually, I, I've had planned the Trans-Zion Trail, uh, the track rather, Trans-Zion Track, which is approximately 48 miles. Mm-hmm. And you start, uh, you, you literally go end to end of Zion. Um, and you start in the Co-op Canyon area, yep. and you trek. Uh, it, it's a, a fairly strenuous trek. You do something along the lines of 20,400 feet of elevation change over approximately four days. Um, and as I said, it starts in the Co-op Canyons area, and then you end up going right past uh, Angel's Landing, you drop down through Refrigerator Canyon into actual Zion Canyon, right. and then pop back up onto the East Rim Trail. Uh, and then on the East Rim Trail, that's where you would have uh, your other car. And as I said, it's about a 48-mile, give or take, trek. Um, and it's one of those things that you definitely have to plan, and, and somebody has to drop the car at, at one end of the park, and you know it's probably a, a two-and-a-half to three-hour drive to drop off another car. Yeah, at the other end, but it, it from what I've read, it takes approximately four days uh, to to do. Um, obviously, you'd have to get some backcountry permits and, mm-hmm. and um, you know do a better job of checking the weather than what we did <laughs> when right. we were trying to do the western. Right. Um, but but that's one of those things that I have on my list of of tracks that I I want to complete in the next year or so. So that that sounds great. So forty eight miles now. You say you once you start uh, at Cobb Canyons and you make your way down, you end up popping out at Angels Landing, or do you do you end up over at Big Springs and and hiking down the Narrows? So so you actually end up the trail uh, as I said starts in Cobb and then you you go on the Western Trail. Uh-huh. And from the West Rim Trail, you'll drop down into Refrigerator Canyon, which, uh, for those that don't know, is um, is you, you climb up that, and then you get to Walter's Wiggles, which yes. go up and up and up. I think it's 27 Wiggles to get to Scout's Lookout or Scout's Point before you, you finally get to the top of Angel's Landing. So it's kind of in that crux, and that little saddle is where the West Rim Trail will drop down into Refrigerator Canyon. Um, and, and if you wanted to, you could probably end your, your Trans-Zion trek there um, at the Zion's, or excuse me, at the Angels Landing show drop-off. Um, but I, was, I would love to continue on and, and pop back up out of the canyon onto the East Rim Trail, uh, which adds, I think, 15 miles. Um, and, and, you know, depending on, on how much time I have, there is that flexibility as to where you pop out and where you end that trek. Yeah, you might as well, right? I mean, in for a penny, in for yeah. a pound, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to having you back on when uh, when you've done that. And uh, that sounds uh, that sounds pretty intense and sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think the longest backpacking trip I've done so far is just a, a two-nighter, um, given that, you know, the stressful work climate in which I, I work in in politics. Can't take a whole lot of time off. 
Um, but hopefully, you know, come, come later this fall, uh, it's one of those things, possibly a Labor Day backpacking trip I'd like to do. Sounds good. So let just to end on this note, any other practical advice? We talked about staying hydrated in the, uh, in the dry heat. Any, any other practical, and not bringing bad cheese with you, any other practical advice you would have? <laughs> yeah, I, I think just having some basic mapping skills has, has saved me a number of times. Um, and understanding how to read a map, uh, even if they aren't very good maps, like sometimes the National Park Service doesn't have the most uh, detailed or to scale maps, but understanding, you know, looking at a topographical map and saying, oh, I, I understand that this point corresponds to what I'm seeing in front of me, or, um, you know, I understand which way is north. That's a basic skill that I think everybody should have. And, and, it's something that, as I said, has saved me multiple times. You know, backpacking on the Utah-Arizona border or up in the Uinta Mountains and just understanding basic directional skills yeah. um, is key. Yeah, I'll add on to that. I think you're absolutely right. I'll add on to that. Basic compass skills and orienteering. Basic orienteering. Uh, just yes. just for safety, if not for anything else. Especially if you're like me and I don't trust my my instinctual sense of direction. I'm with you. Like being ha- having basic map skills, being able to read topographically, understanding what the contours are, and elevation, but also, uh, you know, how to orient yourself on that map is uh, not not only to just make your hike a lot better, but uh, especially if you're off a trail and you're going cross country in the back country, but also um, it's just good safety. Just a good safety. Uh, totally. So last question. I can't remember this. Cell reception in Zion, just for a safety perspective. When you, uh, when you, can you remember when you were uh, when you were out in the back country? Did you have any cell reception, or uh, are you basically on your own? You know, it's very limited. Um, Zion Canyon. If you're in the canyon itself, they do a pretty decent job of, of keeping cell reception available. Yep. Um, when you get to the rim of the canyon, if you're up on the plateau, either the west or the, the east side, if you're on the rim of the canyon, you should be okay getting some reception, um, but if you're in those back canyons and, and those places where um, you could, those kind of nooks and crannies, you're not going to have any reception whatsoever. So be mindful, right? Be mindful. But I think uh, I think uh, when you're in the back country, if you're in the back country in any, uh, in any event, you're not aware of that. Uh, you should have had some better preparation uh, beforehand, but... I think uh, I think right. with that we'll we'll end on that note. Uh, Corey, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to, to speak to us about Zion. We're very excited about the the Trans Zion hike that you'll be uh, taking advantage of uh, uh, later on this summer, early fall, and looking forward to hearing from you again. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Corey. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find show notes and links on our website, everybody'snationalparks.com please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Bye for now.